a Podcast One production. I'm easily confused. Politics is essentially a popularity contest, yeah? And to win that popularity contest, you can go about it any way you want to be popular. And in pursuit of popularity, to be a bit trendy these days, the style of populism seems to be quite popular, which means what exactly? I'm confused. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this episode of Peacock Politics, I want to understand what populism is and why it's more relevant now than ever in Australia. Duncan MacDonald is an expert in populism, a professor of politics at Griffith University in Brisbane. He's written three books on the subject. The latest, International Populism, The Radical Right in European Parliament, is about to be released. Duncan, congrats. I've barely read three books, so to write three is quite the achievement. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. How is uh, writing books about populism these days? Have you got a fair bit of material to work with? Uh, we do. I mean, wh- what I always say is that uh, the rise of populism has probably been very bad for democracy, but very good for my career. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. At least someone's winning out of it. Or, well, that's right. And, that, and that's all that counts. You know. And the popular populists who are winning elections as well. Just before we get into greater detail and bring it into context for Australian uh, listeners, define populism. Right. Okay. So there is actually a lot of confusion around this term. And in the media, you see populism thrown around a little bit like confetti at a wedding. And it means all things to all men. Um, For those of us who actually work on the topic, populism means something very simple. It basically means politicians who propose a view of the world in which on the one side, there's this good, virtuous, hardworking, decent people. And they're seen as being under siege from above by a whole series of elites political, financial, media, intellectual, and so on. And the idea, basically, the populists from Pauline Hansen to Marine Le Pen in France propose is this idea that the elites have basically stolen democracy from the people. The people's voice is no longer reflected in decisions that are made. And the job of the populist is to return democracy back to the good people away from these nasty bad elites. And that's something, this vision of the world is something that's common to populists about, of both right and left. Examples here in Australia, can you give us a few of populist politicians? Well, traditionally, uh, as I mentioned, I mentioned her name already, traditionally, Pauline Hanson would be probably the main example we've had in Australia in the last 25 years. So if you, for example, if you go onto YouTube and look at Hansen's maiden speech, which was September 1996, her maiden speech in Parliament, and you look at that and you listen to the 20 minutes or so of whatever it is, that's a textbook example of populism. So Hansen talks about the good, red-blooded Australian, the silent majority who are being oppressed, in her view, by all the various political elites, both liberals, Labour and so on, by the financial elites, by the banks, big business, by the media who don't give enough attention to what ordinary people actually want and believe in. And, and it's, it's just textbook populism. It's people versus elites. Now, for right-wing populists, the difference for them is that not only are the people seen as being under siege from above by all these various elites, but they're also seen as being a threatened from below by a whole series of others. So for Hansen in 1996, that was indigenous Australians, Asians. You might remember Hansen, Hansen said we were going to be, we were going to be swarmed by Asians. Um, and, and Hansen would still propose a similar view of the world today. It's just she substituted Muslims for Asians. Um, times have changed in terms of who your favourite other is. But that, that's really what, what populists do. They present a, this very black and white view of the world in which the good people 
decent, hard-working people attached to their traditional values are under attack from above by elites and from below by all sorts of nasty, dangerous others. It wasn't that long ago, uh, Duncan, that I th- like left-wing and right-wing to me meant the difference between Ryan Giggs and David Beckham, for instance, in a football parlance. But now I've come to understand the political sides of left-wing and right-wing, and you mentioned there Pauline Hanson. She's very right-wing, given her thoughts on things like immigration, for example. But are there left-wing populists as well? Well, there are. And um, I should say, I also appreciate you bringing up Giggs and Beckham. I'm a massive Manchester United fan. Um, Even called after United footballer, but that's another story. (laughs) Um, But in terms of left-wing populists, yes, there are some examples. There's There's some in Western Europe. So if you think in recent years with the crisis after the GFC in 2008, we've seen left wing populists emerge and in some cases even get into government in places like Greece. So Syriza, who's been a left wing populist government in Greece, Podemos in Spain, in my own country, Ireland, Sinn Féin would be considered a left-wing populist party. But really, for left-wing populists to thrive, you usually need an economic crisis. Now, you haven't had one in Australia since the last century. So, therefore, this is harder ground for for left-wing populists in this country. In Australia, it's much more likely to see the emergence of right-wing populists because they've got issues like immigration. They've got issues like the decline, supposedly, of traditional values to cling on to. They don't have an economic crisis to grapple with. You mentioned um, a couple of names there from from Europe in Greece and Spain, but is populism gaining uh, attention or has it gained great attention over in, say, Europe or other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, this is really a global phenomenon. And in that sense, Australia is slightly lagging behind because your only significant case has been Hanson. And um, I'm also reluctant to use the adjective significant with Hanson because she hasn't actually really ever gained any kind of lengthy traction in, in this country's politics. In other places, you saw populists emerging, for example, in the 1990s, in France, in Austria, in Italy... And they haven't been like Hanson. They didn't crash and burn after a couple of years. They didn't implode. And they're parties that have gone on to greater and greater electoral successes. They're parties that in in many cases have even ended up in coalition governments or governing alone, as has happened in places like Hungary and Poland. Um, This is a phenomenon that has really taken off in Europe in the last two decades. And of course, we see it in other places too. I don't need to remind you who's currently occupying the White House. Classic example of a right-wing populist. In Brazil, we have Bolsonaro, far-right populist. In India, we've got Modi, right-wing populist. So some of the world's biggest democracies are either governed by populists, particularly the right, or they have very significant populist parties. In that sense, Australia is actually out of step, probably thankfully. Hang on, just before we get further on in Australia, I'm I'm a bit confused because you mentioned before populists operate on the notion of looking after ordinary people. So they obviously have an attachment to that if you want to say, class of person. But the guy in charge over in America, you used the example there, Donald Trump, he literally got brought up on a gold-plated shitter, if you know well, what I mean. So I, 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 I do know what you mean, yes. How, how, can he be viewed as a, how can he be viewed as a champion of the people when he's never quite been that ordinary person? What what, what Trump has been able to do, much the same as Silvio Berlusconi did for a long time in Italy. I I lived in Italy through most of the Berlusconi era. Berlusconi, like like Trump, they're both obviously billionaires, but they've been able to portray themselves as being very much men of the people. So even though 
In the case of Trump, you got somebody who grew up in Manhattan who, as you said, um, always has had a rather gilded lifestyle. He's been able to portray himself as he's the one who actually has his finger on the pulse. He's the one who knows what the, the working class family in Ohio actually wants, what they care about. And he's able, just like Berlusconi before him, to put, in some senses, his own personal background to one side and say to people, look, all these nasty elites in Washington and, and, and in the media, they're against you. They're against your values. I'm going to make you masters in your own home again. I'm going to make America great again. I'm the only one who really understands you. And in that way, he's able to get around his very privileged background. And I mean, Trump, in that sense, just like Berlusconi, is an absolute genius of marketing himself. And um, we, we see the results of it today. Give us two points of view. Why has populism seemed to have taken effect in other parts of the world and why hasn't it it here? Is it due to political systems or political climates? Um, all, all of the above and a, and a few more things uh, and a few more things as well. Um, I would certainly say that the fact that in Australia your main populist was Pauline Hanson, who with all due respect to her is a very good campaigner but an absolutely terrible, terrible party leader because everything falls apart around her ears every time after she's had success. Whereas in Europe, you had very capable people like uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen and then Marine Le Pen in France. Uh, you had you had uh, Jörg Haider in, in, in Austria. You had Umberto Bossi in Italy. You had very capable party leaders who were able to build lasting organisations that could survive setbacks, go on to greater successes. I think that's been a key difference. If in Australia you'd, you'd had one of the really competent European populist leaders, the story might have been quite different. I think as well it does help, as I said earlier, you haven't had an economic crisis for, what, over 25 years now? Um, so some of the conditions aren't, aren't perhaps as good as they've been, as they've been in Europe. But I, I think really it comes down to party leaders. It comes down to the populists themselves. I mean, your main populist have been Hanson, and who's, who's after that? Clive Palmer. Mm-hmm. who, again, with all due respect, is not particularly good at running any kind of an organisation, whether it's a football team or a political party. <laughs> yes, Gold Coast United, those are the days <laughs> in the A-League. Oh, man. Uh, with the fact that it has taken hold over there and, and not here, is it? but here we, we seem to have a pretty robust system in the sense that everyone has to vote. It's very hard for minor parties to gain traction in the mud as it flings everywhere, <laughs> mm. so to speak. Uh, the major parties dominate the conversation. It's very hard for other people to break into that system. And then when you take into consideration people who become leaders of the main parties, there's this whole organisation that they have to rise through to get to the top. They just can't come in over the top essentially like Donald Trump did in America and just plonk themselves there and go, I'm the guy. So what I'm saying is does our system protect ourselves a bit better than other parts of the world in regards to this particular strain of politics? Absolutely, I think it does. Um, for a start, your electoral system makes it much harder for minor parties to, to get real traction, certainly certainly in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, it's, it's, it's easier, but House of Representatives, it's a hard one for smaller parties, for new parties. That protects you for sure. Uh, I think compulsory voting, as you rightly mentioned, definitely. We see in Europe, when turnout declines, when fewer people go to vote, right-wing populist parties and populist parties of all types uh, tend to do better. Because their their voters 
are usually quite angry people who are motivated in some ways to actually go and vote, where it's just more the, the sort of apathetic people who might vote for centre-right or centre-left but can't be bothered to get off their couch. Uh, they tend to be more the people who don't turn out in Europe. So in Australia, that's not an issue. Everyone or most people actually do go and vote. So I think that's another fail-safe. Again, as you said, also the, the structure of the two major parties. You don't have a primary-type system in which a Trump-type figure can, can can run to be leader. I mean, let's you know think of an example. Clive Palmer, once upon a time, was, of course, in the uh, the LNP here, here in Queensland, but there was never going to be a situation which he could have run for leader, and that's probably to the good of Queensland. What motivates a populist politician? Are they actually reasonable people or are they a little unhinged? Um, I've actually interviewed an awful lot of them, both from leaders of some of the main European populist parties right down to grassroots members. And one of the things I have to say that has struck me is that they're not radical hotheads like perhaps the the caricature of them might be. They're not necessarily, you know, uh, spitting fire and brimstone from morning till evening about immigrants and so on. Um, they do have pretty clear ideas about how politics works. They know that they're probably going to need to compromise if they're going to achieve their goals. They tend to be pretty smart people. I mean, the the, the average far-right or right-wing populists has really changed over the last few decades. If you'd asked me this question in the 1970s or the 1960s of who's on the far-right, we would have been talking about skinheads. We would have been talking about people really who are putting themselves at the margins of society. Nowadays, they're perfectly respectable-looking people with university degrees and often sharp suits. They're articulate people. There are people that you know, are, are pretty well prepared for, for the political life that, that they've chosen. And in some senses, that, of course, makes them more dangerous for our democracies because it's harder to, to marginalise them. What do you reckon motivates them? Opportunity? Well, well the, the same, I suppose, yeah. Look, I think all politicians have a, a certain degree of ambition and a massive degree of ego. Uh, and that's something that's something that characterised politicians left and right, including including the populists. I do think it's also true that, however misguided some people might see it, that there are people in populist parties that genuinely believe that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, that believe that their traditional values are not respected, that believe that the elites, whether it's in Canberra or Brussels or Rome or Washington, really do not give a damn about them, and that something needs to change. It's an interesting term, isn't it, populist? Because it's almost ironic. It almost flies in the face of what it actually is because it's a populist politician is representing people who feel like the popular people haven't been looking after them. <laughs> well, that, that well, makes sense. Yeah that's, yeah, that's right. But I suppose if you turn it another way, you could say it's about the idea of giving democracy back to the people. You know, populist comes from originally the Latin populist, which just means the people, the population. Um, so it's the idea of we're going to give democracy back to the people. And in that sense, you know, that's why populism, populism in the media it will tend to get confused, for example, even with fascism and non-democratic ways of viewing the world. And that's not true. Populism is certainly democratic. I suppose the problem with it for me at least, is that it's not necessarily what we would call liberal democratic and that populism certainly believes in in elections and representative 
institutions like parliaments and so on. But we see in Europe, for example, some of the far-right populists like Viktor Orban in Hungary or, the, or Kaczynski in Poland, they, they don't like judges who disagree with them. Um, they don't like independent media that disagrees with them. So some of the checks and balances that we take for granted in somewhere like Australia come under threat from populists in Europe. That sounds like it's working back against itself then. Those two examples that you've said there about what they set out to achieve and what they set out to stand for, and then in the end they keep on. They, they sound like they're twisting it back the other way. Well, what they what they would say and what they do say is that judges, journalists are part of the elites, and that they're acting against the real interests of the people, and therefore they have to step over what judges say and and go against what the media says in order to really do what the people want. So let me give you an example. When when I used to live in Italy, Berlusconi was constantly uh, being pursued by the judges, often for very, very good reasons, because his relationship with the law was somewhat problematic in many ways. Um, but Berlusconi's argument to that would always, in response to that, would always be to say, all these unelected judges trying to get in the way of me really delivering for the Italian people when I was elected by the Italian people. And and that's a typical populist argument. And Orban would use the same thing in Hungary. It'd be this idea that, you know, who, who the hell elected the judges? Let me just get on with doing what the people want, what the silent majority want me to do. So they're very good ways of turning it round and they use things like this also to justify why they don't necessarily achieve what they want. I mean, look at Trump at the moment in the States. He's He's been able to to claim that the media get in the way of him achieving his agenda, that judges have been against him. And I'm sure these things will see them much, much more in the run-up to the next election in the States as well when he tries to justify why he hasn't done some of the things he'd promised to do. What is the end game for a populist? Power, just like any other politician. <laughs> 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 it's about power and uh, and I think to some extent achieving achieving things that the, the, their key policies and look in some cases they do actually achieve that we've seen in Europe certainly as regards immigration you've had right wing populists either supporting governments or being part of governments in places like Denmark Austria Italy and they've achieved a lot of a, a lot of the things that they'd said in terms of tightening up on immigration, especially in terms of the rhetoric around that and what's seen as acceptable uh, and, and what's not. So, you know, they, they are, as I said earlier, they, they are often quite capable people and they are capable in some situations of actually getting parts of what they want. So, you know, from that, from that perspective, I think, um, you know, it's, it's been something of a success story in Europe. In your regard, given that you've covered it so closely with all the books that you've written, are we missing out on something by not having a populist stronghold in Australia or are we probably better off without it? Well, I I think you're probably better off without it because I, I think populism ultimately is pretty bad for democracy. You know, if you had strong populists in Australia, I think... um, there would be a lot more rhetoric than there already is against, you know, against the media, perhaps against um, various elites that there are within Australian society. So I think we'd have a more polarised kind of a country. There'd be there'd be a lot more conflict. It'd probably be a less pleasant place to live if we had a strong populist party in Australia. I don't think you're missing out. Having said that, I think there's all the conditions for why, you know, somebody more capable than than a Pauline Hanson or a Clive Palmer could actually, you know, gain some traction in the Australian system 
notwithstanding the various electoral obstacles to that. You know, well, as I said earlier, the, if you had a capable populist leader in Australia, they, they might actually be able to get some kind of a foothold. What, what are those conditions, do you think? Ah, there's a number of them. I mean, for one, think about attitudes to immigration in this country. Um, you know, I think I saw a survey the other year in which 50% of Australians thought that the amount of Muslim immigration into the country should probably, you know, should probably stop. Um, so someone like Han, more capable than Hansen could certainly appeal to that. There's also a lot of misunderstanding in Australia about what the percentage of immigrants, for example, in the country is, or what the percentage of Muslims is, and populists play on that. I mean, there's, there's a little quiz that I always play with my students uh, at Griffith every year in which I ask them to tell me what, what they think the percentage of Muslims in Australia is, and they invariably get it wrong. I'll play the quiz now with me. Go All on. right. Okay, let's do a few countries. Okay, you ready? Go. Tell me, off the top of your head, I don't want you to reflect too much. What's the percentage of Muslims in France, in your view? Uh, 15%. Incorrect. The right answer is 8%. Okay. The average French person thinks it's 31%. Wow. Right? Yeah. Australia? 3%. Okay, that's not bad. The real answer is 2%. The average Australian thinks it's 18 Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, Great Britain? Ooh, given the immigration from Pakistan, I'll go 10%. It's 5%. Ooh, okay. The average British person thinks it's really 21%. So do you see what I mean about perceptions? Mm. If the average person thinks that Muslim immigration, for example, is twice, three, four times the amount it really is, then you can see how, how populists can make an appeal saying, oh, we're being swarmed by Muslims, they're going to take over, they're going to impose their traditions on it. Before you know it, we'll all be living under Sharia law and we won't be able to celebrate Christmas. You know, and th- these kind of ideas can, you know, can really take hold. I mean, let, let's think of it, let's give you a last example. United States, what's the percentage of Muslim in the States? Oh, uh, I'll go 5%. The real answer is 1%. The average American thinks it's 15 <laughs> That doesn't right. surprise me. So, do you see what I mean? There's mm. there is a problem there in that we, we there's a perception of invasion that doesn't actually reflect reality, and that used to be the same in the '90s as well when Hansen was appealing to this idea of we're going to be swarmed by Asians and, and we won't recognise our country. Now, it turned out, you know, several decades later, I think most of us still recognise Australia, and Hansen's obviously moved on to Muslims as her enemy of choice. But th- these are the kind of things that populists appeal to. They appeal to, to, to perceptions of threat that really aren't borne out in reality. So then, my last one for you is, where do you see populism in, say, 10 years' time? Uh, I, think, I think it'll still be doing pretty well. I think a lot of the conditions that help it to, to flourish will still be present. We do have in most of our societies in Western Europe and in Australia, we have a section of society that has kind of been left behind. It's been left behind economically in some places, everywhere it's been left behind culturally. What I mean by that is that you still have a lot of people in in our countries who are, are very attached to traditional values. And who don't recognise how countries have recognise why their countries have changed around them. They don't understand, for example, why we have gay marriage. They don't understand why, you know, it might be an issue to have, say, a crucifix in a classroom in Italy, and some people might want that removed. And there's there's a lot of, I think, especially for older people, but not just. There's a lot of fear about how the world is changing and what that means for them, and what immigration means for them, and and what changes in the global economy mean for them. 
I mean, look at how Trump has really appealed to this idea of, oh, your jobs are all being sold out to China. So there is a lot of fear there. And as long as that fear remains, populism will do well. We've also got to factor in the, the, the reality that mainstream parties are in crisis. Mainstream parties have a lot of difficulty in convincing voters that there's any difference between voting for, for Labour or Liberals. We know that, for example, over half of Australians think that it makes no difference whether they vote for Labour or Liberals. And that's a problem because the populists come along and say, hey, I can be different. I can make democracy work. I can actually do some of the things that you want to see done. And you can write some more books about it. And that's, uh, in a roundabout kind of way, a good thing for you and your career. Duncan, um, really appreciate it, mate. Um, Yeah, you've described it perfectly. Now I have a much better idea about this strain of politics and it seems it's pretty relevant in today's society. Much appreciated. Thank you for joining me on Peacock Politics. Thank you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.